Shape Moda designs women's trousers to suit everybody's shape to get the perfect fit. Just imagine that as soon as you wear a pair of trousers, they feel like the best piece of clothing ever. Dress for your body shape with Shape Moda and make a huge change in your life now. Go to shapemoda.com and find out which body shape you have. Shape Moda gives you the perfect fit. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today, we are going to be talking to Cork author Louise O'Neill about her new book, Idol, which delves into the heart and mind of a super influencer in the wellness world. It's been interesting because I think when people read Idol, because I suppose, you know, Samantha Miller, the main character, is a wellness influencer and it's sort of skewering a lot of that culture. I think people are very surprised actually to hear that I'm not coming at this from like a very cynical place. This has actually been a really important part of my life for like a long time. But first, we had to get this young woman on when we heard she was turning a vintage horse box into a food truck, doing all the renovations herself while studying for the Leaving Cert. Kildare student Alice Kelly has been into baking since she was a small child and has dreamt of selling her cakes around the country. And this summer, that's exactly what she's going to do. She spoke to me about her baking obsession and about taking her vintage horse box turned cake shop on the road. So, Alice, thank you very much for coming on the Women's Podcast. Tell me, first of all, about how your love of baking started, because you say you've been baking since you could hold a spoon, which I love. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I started when I was around three. I'd watch my mum just make cupcakes for my brother's lunchbox. And I I knew from then that I wanted to start baking. And I used to try and kick my mum out of the kitchen so I could bake on my own, even at that age. Um, It was kind of like a gradual thing. I began making just easy stuff and then eventually when I was like 12 or 13 it it was kind of like I wanted to be a baker that's what I wanted to be I didn't want to be anything else I only wanted to be a baker and here I am at 18 and I still want to be that so. And was there a certain amount of visualization because you used to kind of write it down or you would kind of talk about the dream that you had of the baking? Yeah I mean I have like a wooden door in my bedroom that I've carved a menu in when I was like five years old it's still there to this day so yeah, I definitely, I've been planning it for a long time. It just happened that I picked the vintage horse box to do now. Right. Well, tell us about the vintage horse box, because I know people are turning all sorts of things into food trucks. I've, I've seen an ambulance turned into a, a toasted sandwich van. So it's it's wonderful that you picked something so creative. But did when you saw the, the vintage pony uh, box, the trailer, did it immediately just scream pop-up bakery to you. Yeah, I definitely, I knew I wanted vintage. A lot of people are asking me why I didn't pick a a normal horse box or a new horse box, but I definitely liked the kind of the old look of it and the challenge of doing it up is, you know, it's enjoyable to me. But um, yeah, I definitely, I fell in love with it when I saw it. So I had to, I had to buy it. And when you, you didn't actually have to buy it because you got it as an 18th birthday present. Is that right? Yeah. A very, very loving family. Uh, it's a very nice present. Yeah. So, so did you did you ask them for that or how did that work out? Well, it was it had been my 18th birthday and I really I didn't have a present. I kind of just kind of put it to the side. I was going to spend it on kind of like a college laptop or something. But then I was scrolling online with my dad and I, I obviously saw the horse box and I was like, you know, if I'm going to spend my 18th birthday present money on something, I'm going to spend it on that. So, yeah. Great. So tell us about it, because it you had to do a lot of renovation. And this is the added bit I think is fantastic, because I know lately we've heard a lot about Shiy. I don't know if you've read those books and um, where the people are helping uh, women particularly yeah. to do jobs around the house that maybe traditionally people weren't encouraged to do. Um, so you decided to take all the renovation on yourself. You're not daunted by that at all. It was a little bit daunting, but I have so much motivation to do it at this point that I enjoy it so much um definitely I knew if I needed help I I could find the help you know male friends my dad my brother um but so far it's just been a lot of work that I'm willing to do 
So tell us a flavour of the kind of things you've had to do and the stuff you've had to learn. And has there been a lot of watching YouTube videos to, to learn things? <laughs> There's been a lot of that, definitely. Um, I think definitely asking my dad how to use all the tools has been a part of it, but mainly research and so much YouTube and websites and forums that I've been scrolling through. There's a lot of behind the scenes that I wouldn't show either on TikTok or Instagram, but definitely so much research you know tell us about what you had to actually do and learn the skills you've learned along the way god everything <laughs> um a lot of metal work I've done so much metal work I've made two new back doors a whole window that closes and opens um just repairing wood repairing some tires uh cutting the floors <laughs> painting sanding just so much even learning about the metals and what paints are suitable and just stuff that you wouldn't even think of if you looked at it. And what was the most frustrating job? Was there any of the jobs that you just thought, oh my God, I'm going to get someone else to do this or I'm going to throw money at this problem. This is terrible. Definitely. Uh, the back door, <laughs> the top back door is so heavy. It's probably four times my weight at this point. I can't lift it at all. I had to get my brother, my dad and my friend to lift it on. I had to make whole new hinges for it. Just so much welding and cutting. It was, you know, exhausting. But it took me a whole two weeks to make. It was the longest part of the project so far. But Alice, you actually did it. And the thing is, you've been documenting all of this, as you said, on Instagram and TikTok, which is wonderful because I think it's a real, I mean, it's an inspiration for a start that you're 18 and you're going to be going out into business, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the fact that you are doing all this work that, again, people tend to think, oh, that's not girl stuff. Even today in 2022, it's still seen as kind of not girls uh, work. So was that important to you that you showed the process? It was so important to me. I knew um, from looking at social media as a normal teenager that I wanted to do something within social media because my dream job is to be kind of entertaining and on TV and stuff like that. But um, documenting the process was definitely a big thing for me, especially, you know, having something, I hate saying the word unique, but it's unique to people online. Um, it was so important to document it and show my journey. People love watching a story come to life. So that's what I... I had to do it. And was it also because this is the women's podcast? Did you feel that sense of, you know, I'm going to show that a young woman is just as capable of doing all this stuff as a young man? Definitely. Um, it was mainly the fact that I wasn't doing it because I was a woman. I was doing it because I was following my dream. But it definitely turned out that people didn't expect me to be able to do half of the stuff because I was a young woman. Um, especially quite a lot of men came forward and said, you're inspirational because you're a female and you're young. You're doing this by yourself pretty much. And, you know, I wouldn't see my daughter doing that. And I'd feel guilty to that extent because I'd be like, oh no, I'm showing that, you know, everyone can do this. You just have to have the motivation and the, well, some skills that are learned. What would you say to anybody listening who sort of feels like, oh, I can't do it? Like you must have thought at the beginning, like, am I actually able to do this? You must have had self-doubt, but you kind of overcame that. So what advice would you give? Have a good support system. Definitely have a backup plan um, and just go for it because I wouldn't have started if I didn't have that kind of doubt. I was like, oh, I can't I can't do this. I won't spend my money on that. But eventually I kind of just said it's now or never. If I'm not going to be able to do it right now, I'm probably never going to be able to do it. So I just bit the bullet and <laughs> bought it. But yeah, definitely do it if you feel like you definitely can. We also haven't mentioned the small matter of your leaving cert, which was also going on at the same time. <laughs> so how were you juggling all of that together? It was a lot. It would be like during the day, if I didn't have an exam, I'd be working on, you know, editing videos and working on the food truck. And then, you know, after my dinner, I would be studying like heavily. Um, it was exhausting, but it was only two weeks of my life. You know, that's what got me through it. I was like, I'm getting through it. I only have two weeks of exams, but, you know, I had to I had to study. And I also had to work on social media because I post daily and it was a lot of work, but I'm glad I did it. I wouldn't go back and change anything about it. And you've gathered a huge audience. Tell us how many um, people are watching and following you uh, on this project. I have about half a million as of yesterday on TikTok, which is just, you know, I can't fathom that number. And then 200,000 on Instagram so far. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's a crazy amount. I never would have expected it, even when I started. Definitely not. 
And have have you had people sort of reaching out to you with offers and sponsors and this kind of thing? Because you're now at that level. What happens when you get those amount of followers? Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I've been sponsored by Woody's, which is just like <laughs> ridiculous, you know. Um, it was amazing. You definitely don't expect it. I've got so many kind of small businesses offering to make me aprons. And it's so lovely that like even the community of Ireland has kind of come together and offered so many things. Even people offering to help to come to me, which <laughs> it's flattering, you know. I definitely <clears throat> wouldn't expect it. OK, we should ask how the exams went before we get on to what you're doing next. But did they did they go OK? And what what are you hoping to get in terms of going to college? Um, I'm hoping to do culinary, whatever kind of culinary course. Um, you know, they're all on my CAO, whichever one I get, I'm going to go with because I just I love culinary in general. Um, they're all kind of, you know, normal amount of points. I wasn't too stressed in my leaving cert, luckily, but, you know, it's a leaving cert. Of course, you're going to be a little bit stressed. The exams went OK. Um, just normal exams. I was quite angry at the home ec one. The home ec one was really, really hard, even though I was getting straight H1s in home ec. <laughs> it was just, it wasn't a good oh, exam. That's really annoying. But look, forget about the leaving cert now because you've got this massive summer ahead of you. What is going to happen next and what what is your plan? Oh boy, um, I'm planning on trying to find markets. I have to get insurance and all the businessy side of things and inspection of where I'm going to be baking and then also the pony box. Um, I'm hoping definitely to have it done by the end of July, if not early August, and then I'll be going to markets and, you know, throughout Ireland. I just have to <laughs> have to keep working on it and get it painted and sanded and then I'll be done pretty much. And tell us about the kind of things you're going to sell from your food truck, because I suppose you know better than anybody else. You need to kind of gimmick a little bit. You need something different. You need something unique. So are you going to be kind of working on products that are going to set you apart from maybe other people? Yeah, definitely. I've been kind of working on menu prototyping and stuff like that. But I have a lot of unique bakes that I think, you know, are definitely to Irish people's palates. It's just they won't be common baked goods, but I will have the common ones that everyone likes buying. Tell us about the unique bakes. Oh gosh, uh, what can I think of? Um, blondies are very kind of, they're not common in Ireland, surprisingly. I'd ask people about them and they've never heard of them. Um, yeah, blondies and brookies are my main thing that I always bake. What are brookies? They're like a cookie layer and then a brownie layer on top. They're lovely. Yeah, definitely a family favourite. But yeah, I yeah. don't commonly see them in bakeries in Ireland. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. Those kind of things like cronuts and those mix, those kind of Frankenstein bakes are really popular, aren't they? Yeah, very Americanized. But I think I'll definitely stick to traditional with some part, parts of it because everybody likes traditional. But I'd also I'm like just making one up. up here as we're speaking, Alice. I'm thinking of a scone, which is a scone and a brownie mix up. What do you think? Sounds great. Yeah, I'll name yeah, it out. I'll take ten percent of the commission on that for that idea. Definitely. <laughs> I'll send you a few more. I hope you come to Dublin as uh, a market definitely. in Dublin because we really. I've already been offered a market in Dublin. I can't say which one right now, but I'm definitely Dublin is first on my list. Brilliant. Okay. Well, listen, we heard about you. We thought you were just amazing. We wanted you to come on and we hopefully you might come back and tell us when you're on the road, how things are going. And maybe you can do it. We can talk to you from the actual uh, horse box. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, do you have a name for your horse box? Are you calling it anything? It's called From Scratch or From Scratch Bakery. That's the name it is on the food registration. So From Scratch. And people can find you at the From Scratch Bakery on Instagram. Not that you need any more followers, but you, you <laughs> might get a few more from the Women's Podcast. Alice Kelly, thank you so thank much you for so joining much. us today. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks very much to Alice Kelly. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for that truck because I bet her cakes are gorgeous. This podcast is brought to you by ShapeModa.com. Log on today to find your perfect fit. Now, you're all very familiar with our next guest today. She is a hugely popular novelist from Clonakilty, County Cork. Her books include Only Ever Yours, Asking For It, which started a conversation about consent in this country that is still ongoing and almost love. Her last novel, After the Silence, won Crime Novel of the Year at the Irish Book Awards. And her latest book, Idol, is a fascinating look into the world of the spiritual and wellness influencer, which has a wonderfully unreliable narrator in Samantha Miller. Samantha is an oracle to her legions of fans, telling them how to live their lives, how to be happy, how to find and honour their truth. She has three million followers and her new book, Chased, 
has gone straight to the top of the bestseller list and she's appearing all over the place at sellout events. Determined to speak the truth to her adoring fans, she's written an essay about her sexual awakening as a teenager with her best female friend, Lisa. She never told anyone about it, but now she's telling the world. Of course, the essay goes viral, but then Lisa gets in touch to say she doesn't remember it that way at all. And it turns out that Lisa's memory of that night is far darker. So it's Samantha Miller's word against Lisa's and who gets to tell the story, whose truth is really a lie. So there is lots to talk about there. Um, and she's really, as usual, got her finger on the pulse of um, subjects that are exercising people all over the place. And I began by asking Louise O'Neill, what was it that interested her about the world of the wellness guru? Well, it's been interesting because I think when people read Idol, because I suppose, you know, Samantha Miller, the main character, is a wellness influencer and it's sort of skewering a lot of that culture. I think people are very surprised actually to hear that I'm not coming at this from like a very cynical place. This has actually been a really important part of my life for like a long time. When I was a child, I was very devout, like just very religious. Um, like, you know, I remember asking my grandmother for a missile, um, you know, sort of like a, which is like a Bible um, type of thing for people who don't know for like my ninth birthday. Um, and I wanted to be a nun actually for a little period of time when I, I actually think the solitude of that life, I think would have, would have suited me. Um, and I don't know, there was something in the sort of the ritual of mass, the coming together, the, the, this, I don't know, um, you know, the incense and the, and the idea of like, you know, the transformation of, uh, you know, the, um, the, this bread and wine into the body of Christ. There was kind of a magic in it, um, that I found like deeply, comforting and deeply fulfilling and then I suppose when I was I suppose a teenager um you know I suppose the early 2000s um and I think a lot of information was coming out around like the sex abuse scandals and and the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby institutions and 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 my relationship with Catholicism really soured um and I was 15 when I picked up a copy um of you can heal your life. Um, someone had given it to my mother as a present and she never read it. Like, it's just so, like, they, my dad would be a bit more open to it, but my mother has no interest in one whatsoever um, in either organised or or traditional um, forms of spirituality. But I suppose that kind of new age spirituality really filled that void that had been left, you know, that that need that I had to really believe in something greater. And um, so, yes, I've been into, as I said, wellness and new age spirituality since I was um, a teenager. But I think it was really during the pandemic because I follow a lot of these people online. You know, I often say if Samantha Miller was a real person, particularly in my 20s, when I think I was struggling with addiction and with eating issues, I would have been like in the front row at one of her events being like, please heal me, you know. So, yeah, I do follow a lot of uh, the, I suppose, the women in particular in this space. And I think during the pandemic, I noticed that a lot of them were beginning to post kind of quite odd content. Like I was like, well, I'm following you because I also like yoga and crystals. (laughs) And now I feel like I'm being exposed to like this really like right wing uh, rhetoric um, and I, I had, and then a friend of mine sent me this article on this thing which would had been coined called conspirituality and it was like where conspiracy theories and spirituality meet and I thought oh that's exactly what I've sort of been seeing um, play out and I, I then I started to think well it'd be really interesting to write about a character sort of who straddles that that line a little bit um, and that is how Samantha Miller and all her blonde beautiful um, complicated glory came to me very much complicated. And we'll get on to her in a sec. But just to stay with those people, because it's not a sort of um a field I'm very familiar with. Like I I think of people like Glennon Doyle, who wrote Untamed, you know, people who are and, and Brené Brown. I suppose they're different, but in some there's some similarities, I suppose. They have huge followings and people really hang on their every word. So it's kind of like you're looking at all those people, aren't you, who men and women who kind of get these followings. And it is almost like a church, a community of followers People, instead of looking to God, looking to these gurus instead. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose actually, I think anyone who's worth their salt following will always tell you, I'm not a guru. You know, like you have to be your own guru. You have to trust your own instincts. I think anyone who's telling you that their way is the only way is someone that you should be um, very wary of. I suppose, I, I think that women have been really poorly served 
by traditional medicine. You know, like there are there are studies now that really show, I suppose, the gender gap in terms of the quality of care that we're receiving. Um, and particularly when it comes to pain, like I think our pain is so often dismissed and belittled. Um, and I think that so there has there has been this gap left or, or this opening. And I think that traditional and complementary medicine has really sort of been able to to fill that and to meet women's needs. So like women are more likely, I suppose, to be drawn um, to these these kind of gurus. Um, and I suppose I just think it's worth it's worth really looking at who we're following online. Um, and often, I suppose, as well, you know, when you think about these kind of practices, um, particularly, I suppose, things like, let's say, like yoga or um, or spirituality that's very much drawing for, let's say, Eastern cultures, there is something interesting in the fact that so many of the leaders in this space are white, blonde, very thin women. Um, and I think some of those women are capable of interrogating that privilege. Actually, Glennon Doyle is a good example of that, of someone I think who does sort of try and try her best anyway to kind of do that work. Whereas I think an idol, Samantha, seems to be incapable really of um, of looking at, I suppose, how her whiteness and how her beauty and how coming from like a very wealthy family and all of those things, how those have played out in her success. I think she very much wants to believe that the only reason why she's successful is because of her own hard work and and, and her talent, which I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Well, let's talk more about her and about the central bit, really, which is interesting that you've written about consent a lot. I'm asking for it, like, I think started a conversation in this country that's still going on and uh, was so important. And again, it was made into a brilliant play as well. And anyway, you know, what a, what an incredible book. But um, consent was huge in, in there and lack of consent. And in this as well, there's a... The storyline is Samantha Miller and her old childhood friend and they remember one night very differently where there was, uh, Samantha's talking about this amazing sexual awakening she has, she writes an essay about it and her friend Lisa basically has a different story to tell about that night and that's kind of how the whole thing plays out and that's how her kind of star starts to descend. Why did you choose that kind of uh, a female sort of sexual encounter which is kind of interesting? I mean, I suppose the reason why I wanted to explore this, first of all, was after asking for it came out, um, which, you know, I suppose deals with the rape of this young woman. Like, I suppose what happened after that was that at every event that I went to, at every signing that I did, like often just walking down the street, I would have people coming up to me um, and telling me their stories um, and telling me what had happened to them. And... I was very struck by how many of them said, but I don't think the other person sees what happened that night as rape or as assault. And I couldn't stop thinking about that, I suppose, because, you know, that idea that you could have two people in one room and that when they left, that one person could see what happened there as trauma, you know, like the worst thing that had ever occurred to them in their lives. And the other person might never think about it ever again. And, I suppose, who we choose to believe and whose story we sort of decide is the truth, I think is very telling about our own prejudices and also about where we are as a culture. So I wanted to look at that. But, you know, I have spent the years since asking for it came out, came out talking about these subjects, whether that, you know, like talking about gendered violence, talking about male violence against women, um, and it's, it's so frustrating how often that conversation gets mired in accusations of like misandry and, and man hating um, and, you know, not all men. And um, like and it feels as if we can never have an honest conversation about the fact that like 98 percent of the perpetrators of this kind of violence are male. Um, you know, victims can be male or female, but like, you know, the majority of the, the perpetrators are male. And I have found that very, very frustrating. Um, and I suppose I wanted to be able to have a conversation or to be able to look at these this issue, this idea of, I suppose, like one person saying that this is what happened and another person saying, you know, the opposite um, about consent. And I suppose, and also about this kind of idea that like fake or false rape allegations are somehow very prevalent in society. I wanted to have that conversation but like without 
gender. Do you know what I mean? Or, or without feeling as if it was getting sidetracked by gender, even though obviously gender is a really important part of that conversation. But I suppose it was like, how can I look at these issues and, and how can I help the reader look at them in a really clear eyed way? And in a, and this was making the, the two characters at the heart of the story, women, felt like that was a way of doing it. Um, and I suppose as well, I also really wanted to write about female friendship. Like it's, you know, since Only Ever Yours, which was my first book, which had, you know, like this very obsessive teenage friendship at the heart of it. That is something I suppose that I've, I, I keep kind of returning to. Um, and that is really at the core of Idol is this friendship between Sam and Lisa, this and and the love that they have for each other, that even though they both see themselves as the victim of the other person's behaviour, um, that actually they're probably the loves of each other's lives. Um, and that they, they're kind of always trying to find a way back to each other, even though the reader can see this is going to end in like self-destruction. And I suppose, I think that's so honest in that often, even if someone has really hurt us, even if someone has harmed us, we can still love them. And I think that's really difficult, a difficult thing to kind of accept both as maybe the victim of something like this, but also from the outside looking in, it can make it look very confusing. I found that portrayal of that friendship. And again, like it is something you've you've always, I think you put into every book and it's it's a really big theme in your in your books. And I, I love it. And I think they're so interesting, basically friendships between young women particularly. But in this one, I really related to it. And I think a lot of people will, but you don't hear a lot about it. Friendships that become unhealthily um, sort of intertwined. And they are, I think it is unhealthy because it's not good to be that obsessed with somebody and their lives are so kind of everything they do is together. And they're, they're almost planning out their whole lives as how they're going to be together. And But I think we don't talk about it a lot because it is a kind of, there's a bit of a taboo around it. But I think a lot of women, I certainly have had that experience. And I know other people have had where your friendships, particularly when you're quite young, and they're not healthy, but you know, because it's a friend, a friendship, it's not as easy to maybe um, extricate yourself from or to uh, to identify as it is would be with a sort of heterosexual relationship. Yeah, and thing. I think there's a lot of, particularly as you said, when you're younger. I mean, I think my relationships with my friends now are very boundaried. But also, I mean, a lot of that is just to do with time. <laughs> we don't have as much time <laughs> to kind of be like, you know, I think when you're in school and when you're in um, at university, you have so much time to kind of like spend with this other person. But I also think there's like an, an enormous amount of pressure sometimes that can come with that where you want this other person to be, to sort of, I don't know, be your soulmate in a way and, and live up to all of your expectations. And if they disappoint you, you feel very hurt. And I think you really see that with Sam and Lisa. And actually it's it's interesting in a way because I think it's very much replicated in the relationship that um, Sam has with her followers um, or with her girls, um, as she calls them, that they have this quite symbiotic relationship where they really need each other. And, and her girls see Sam as sort of this, the conduit to the life of their dreams that she knows the secret to prosperity and success and love and 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 all of the kind of the things that they desire and then when she when they realize that I don't know that she has you know feet of clay or that she's not that she's not perfect like the fury that they feel towards her I think is is quite a there's kind of a real immaturity in that as well do you know yeah and the other thing that's interesting about Sam is that you gave her an eating disorder. You just mentioned there earlier, you've spoken about it before, that you had an eating disorder yourself and have gone through a lot of work on that. Um, so you are very well placed to kind of uh, have a character do that because you have that experience. And I think all novelists bring in their own experience into into their work. But why was it important, particularly with her, to have that yeah. Um, addiction? I suppose there's always a concern when you write a character that has any sort of similarity to you I mean Samantha and I are very different people I am nowhere near as charismatic to begin with you know but I'm hopefully nowhere near as dangerous either um I think there's always that risk when you bring in equality it's a bit like when a writer says when you when 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 someone when a novelist writes um a book where the main character is also a novelist there's always that fear of oh, are people going to assume that this is you know autobiographical in a way um, but which of course it is not. I just want to really, really like and put, you know, make that very plain. Uh, but yeah, I think with, with Samantha, like 
you know, often with a character, I think you're trying to sort of find a way in to understand like their motivations or understand the person that they are or or why they have um, become who they are. Um, and to me, I suppose, I knew that she was going to be an addict. Like I knew that she was, and, and like she does have um, drug addiction as well. But I suppose part of the way in which I saw her as a teenager, as someone who probably presented as like overly confident and someone who came across as being very brash and being really popular and kind of having everything sorted, but actually secretly that being very much undercut by like a very deep sense of insecurity. And I think even the way in which, you know, like obviously when Lisa, her best friend starts dating Josh, her ex-boyfriend, um, and that overwhelming fear that she has of, of losing Lisa, to me, that really spoke to someone who I suppose was not secure in who they were as a person. Um, and I, I think I wanted to show sort of a physical manifestation of that or a very obvious manifestation of that to the reader. Um, and uh, the bulimia, I think, became became part of that. Um, it It's very much, I suppose, indicative of someone, because I think it's different to anorexia and I've had both. But I think with anorexia, there's no hiding it, you know, like you're so thin that like, you know, that, that it's very obvious to people that you have an issue. Whereas I think with bulimia, it's very hidden. It's very secretive. You could have bulimia for a very long time and really have no outward sort of um, signs of it. Um, so to me, someone like Samantha, who placed so much importance on appearances and, and what things looked like, um, bulimia felt like a more, I think, realistic illness for her, um, for her to have. And another thing we haven't spoken about yet is the whole cancel culture thing, because you do quite a clever thing. You you sort of list at the top of some chapters um, how many followers she has. I think she's over, over two <laughs> yeah. and a half million or something at the beginning. And as this scandal that she's now embroiled herself in by possibly having, um, you know, had non-consensual uh, sex with, with her friend, um, her followers dwindle and, and dwindle. So what are your own thoughts on cancel culture and the fact that uh, does it really yeah, exist? Yeah, I mean, it's funny with the um, Instagram followers because... I had actually tracked with um, other people, not who didn't even necessarily gone through similar scandals, but who had gone through quite public scandals. And you'd actually be surprised by how few followers they lose, you know? And and um, I remember saying this to my editor and she was like, yeah, but I think visually it feels a bit more dramatic for the story if there's like this massive kind of drop in followers. And I was like, okay. Um, and I actually think that sort of plays into what I'm going to say next in that, I don't really believe in cancel culture. Um, and the reason why I'm going to say that is that, well, I think that this can impact people, but it, I think it disproportionately impacts people who have very little power, you know, like people who are maybe from marginalized communities, um, uh, you know, like I suppose people of color, queer people, you know, women, like I think that those are the people that are disproportionately impacted by cancel culture. Whereas often when we're talking about this, like, I think the more powerful you are and the more wealthy you are, actually, the more difficult it is to cancel you. Um, and there's a line in, in the book where um, Samantha's manager says to her, like, she's like, just go back to New York and live your life. You know, she said, the only thing that those people can't forgive is poverty. She's like, but you're rich enough. They're not going to care about this, you know. Um, but Samantha kind of can't let that go. She just has to, I think, hold on to, um, she just wants, I think, that validation from the approval from her girls and all of that. Um, and I suppose it's really trying to have a level of nuance where we can look at, let's say, pylons and we can look at on at internet pylons and can say, these are probably not very helpful. They're definitely like have a really negative impact on people's mental health. What are they actually achieving? Is this helping to facilitate like a dialogue or a conversation? And then also being able to say that if someone has um, committed a crime or if someone has said something that is deeply offensive or hurtful or harmful, then that needs to be called out um, and that there has to be consequences. And I suppose it's just being able to, I suppose, differentiate between the two um, and I don't know, being able to have a more nuanced conversation around it, because often I think the conversation sort of devolves into people are being silenced and, you know, no one's allowed to have, you know, opposing views. And, and then you see these people who are claiming to be silenced talking about that in like interviews with national newspapers or while they're on BBC Breakfast. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure how being given 
a national platform to talk about this is sort of the same as being silenced, you know, like that, that doesn't quite add up. So sometimes I think the conversation around it can be very simplistic. And I think it's about maybe just a little bit more nuance. Mm. Um, you have been writing columns for around 10 years, I think, in The Examiner and now in The yeah, Sunday right. Times, relatively exactly. recently. You. Congratulations. That's great. You wrote recently about the trans issue and you've had a, re- a couple of really good columns um, in The Sunday Times. And we're talking about the um, the so-called debate about trans issues that obviously was on Liveline and then Dublin Pride uh, pulled its sponsorship from RTE. So I just wanted to ask you, because it is it, at the moment, it seems like, it, you know, in a way it, there wasn't any conversation and people just yeah. got on with it gender identity bill there was no issue now it has been maybe well I think clearly orchestrated into some kind of uh, debate why did you feel compelled to write about that because it is kind of sticking your neck above the parapet it is a little bit yeah to discuss that Um, issue well I think firstly I'm not on Twitter and that does make it a lot easier Roisin you know my um, my partner is in charge of my Twitter account so in a way it makes it a lot easier to write my column to be very clear about what I want to say um, and then to be able, like, I think there's a real privilege in being able to put it out into the world and feeling somewhat protected. Um, like, I think if there was legitimate criticism, Richard would, you know, or my or my editor would say, look, I think you need to look at this. But I suppose when it feels like it's a lot of noise that maybe isn't helpful, I'm like, I think I have a certain amount of privilege that I can kind of, I suppose, that I'm not exposed to that. Um, but I also think that it's really, really important. Um, I mean... I don't know if I'm even necessarily the right person to be writing these columns because I actually think one of the biggest issues is is that so often the people who are having these discussions, who are writing these columns are cisgender um, and that the people whose lives are directly impacted um, by these so-called debates often do not have, you know, national platforms um, to sort of defend themselves. Um, So I suppose it's just trying to use my voice in in whatever way I can to sort of, um, to support this community. Like I have trans people in my life that, that I really love and I'm worried for. Um, and I suppose as well, I don't want the only columns, you know, let's, let's say in the Sunday times, um, to be, um, I suppose to be talking about this issue in a really, in a really negative way. I mean, I don't know. I mean, actually, no, I, I'm not going to say I don't know. I don't, agree that human rights should ever be up for debate um I think that is fundamentally like a completely flawed um argument and I cannot imagine like I I feel worried and I feel angry and I feel upset every time I see um this kind of um you know like like live line or like a, a piece um written about this and then I think my god if this is how I feel like I cannot imagine what it must be like to be trans um and to turn on the radio or to open a newspaper and to see your humanity um being either ridiculed or called into question like I just think that is so so harmful um and yeah I suppose I just I I suppose that's kind of part of why I think it's really important um for allies to um to speak up yeah, and I think those of us who had abortions and told our abortion stories remember that um, at the time of the repeal, you know, where you kind of had to defend yourself, defend what, again, is a human right to, to yeah. health care and all of that kind of thing. Um, and I Roisin, suppose in, in that circumstances, th- thankfully, telling stories did help in that Yeah, and, and Roisin, I, I, I agree with you. And like, you know, I think when we think, in it, I, I suppose, I'll, I'll put it this way. I mean, I've, I haven't had a, an abortion, but like, I remember when um, when I went in to vote um, for the uh, same-sex marriage referendum, you know, marriage equality, I remember just this euphoric sense of, like, just, I remember crying in the voting booth, like, just this euphoric sense of, like, just excitement and joy. And, and then when, when that vote, you know, when the Yes campaign won, like, just feeling so thrilled. And then I think with um, the repeal referendum, I didn't have that same experience. I felt exhausted and I felt really depleted. And I remember talking to friends of mine who were gay and asking them if they had felt similarly after the um, marriage equality. And they said they had. And I was like, okay, so that really, I think, brought home to me that I think it's easy to, I don't know, like feel like these conversations are quote unquote important when they're not sort of directly impacting you. But I think the experience of all of those like, 
debates around whether women should have autonomy over their own bodies, like that really took its toll. And that really, I think, left its scars where you just think, okay, I had to beg for my right to sort of have autonomy over my own body that like my gay friends had to beg for their right to, you know, be marry the people that they love. And I suppose I just, I, I, I just don't want that for the trans people that I know and love, you know, I just don't want them to have to, I suppose, exp- I mean, I know that they are, but like, I suppose it's just that feeling of like, well, why should they go through this too? I don't think anyone should have to. I think that's a really good point just because it did happen to say women and it did happen to uh, gay men and women that, you know, have we learned maybe that that's not something we should put people through? Have we gone through these two massive things? Because, you know, it was very uh, uplifting, the, the gay marriage one, but I do remember thinking, oh my God, how awful that this issue of whether you can love somebody or settle down with somebody is like, it's being, we're actually discussing that on the national airways. It just seemed so wrong. And uh, similarly with abortion. And uh, yeah, I think I take your point very much. Like it's, maybe it was necessary in those cases, but do do we, you know, do we need to carry that on again? And probably not. And we all know how hurtful and damaging it is to the people involved. I want to mention one other column that you wrote, which I really liked as well. You, You wrote a really interesting one about uh, you drew comparisons between the way Sally Rooney was being treated by some, not all, but mostly male commentators and how the successes of women like Maeve Binchy, Marion Keyes and Cecilia Hearn were sort of diminished in the 90s um, and the early noughties. Talk to me about that, because it was very an interesting take that I hadn't really thought of before. Yeah, well, I think that we've all sort of realised that, like, I, I suppose I often think, you know, if there had been male authors who were selling in the quantity that the Maeve Binchies, the Marion Keys, the Sheila Flanagan's, the Kathy Kelly's, the Cecilia Hearns were selling it in the 90s. Like there would have been bonfires waiting for them at Dublin airport every time they arrived home, you know, it would have been like, oh my God, here, Open you know. top buses. Yeah, exactly. Return of the conquering heroes, you know. And, and I suppose it, the, those books were really dismissed in a way because I suppose they were, you know, written by women and, and were... Um, about women's lives. And I suppose also like, you know, sometimes the marketing didn't help, you know, that it, they were kind of a pink cover with some shoes or whatever was slapped on on the front, which really, I think, didn't take into consideration the emotional depth and and, and maturity and um, brilliance of, of some of those books, you know. Um, and I've read, I've, I've read old interviews with um, Cecilia and with Marion in particular, where I, I was quite taken aback and I just thought wow that would never that would never happen today and and I suppose when um someone like Sally came along and 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 some of the I suppose some of the conversation I did find quite funny where they were like no one has ever written these this is such a you know she's she's um, throwing off the shackles of the church and and like you know no one has written books like this before like it's about a young woman having an affair and I I did think well okay maybe she was writing about like a young woman and having an affair and getting an abortion in the 80s, you know, like when with Light a Penny Candle. So I, I thought that was sort of funny. But then, but I did think it was so wonderful that to see a young Irish woman treated with such respect, you know, that to see sort of her her stories and her, her point of view and all of that, like I was taken so seriously. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just wonderful to see, I suppose, that the most talked about um young author today is a young Irish woman like I do think that's really exciting um so I think I was I th- a part of me thought oh well things have really changed and then I suppose I, I began to see a lot of the conversation around her kind of shifting slightly and this ridicule around her Marxist beliefs and um and I, I don't know and I thought oh okay maybe things haven't changed quite as much as I thought it they had or I'd hoped that they had because, you know, again, maybe it's this idea that we're how comfortable are we as a society with a woman being as successful as she is or being as respected as she is or having, you know, with, as I said, with her talent and, and her and her wealth and and her opinions, you know, and, and how how open she is with her political opinions. And um, and I suppose to see the kind of backlash against that makes me just think that I don't know if, as I said, has the needle sort of moved as much as maybe um, it ostensibly has or it appeared to be. Yeah, it was a, it was a great column. Um, and I can't let you go without asking you about your recent experience with ayahuasca. Because <laughs> this is 
something I'm fascinated about because I, I have had for a long time, I think it was a, I can't remember the woman in America, the TV presenter, she did a documentary about going to take mm. it, I watched it in Peru, I think is where the original sort of place is. And I'm fascinated by that because it just seems, I'm, I'm a real wuss. I've never taken mushrooms or any of those psychedelic things, but I kind of, there's a part of me that would really like to, to do stuff like that. So why, t- first of all, maybe you could explain ayahuasca to people who haven't heard of it and then tell us why you decided to take it. Okay, so it's a psychoactive brew um, that has been used by indigenous peoples um, in South America for like, God, I would say hundreds of years, you know. Um, and a lot of the time, um, you know, I suppose it's used to either for physical healing, but also for emotional healing. Um, and yeah, it's become very popular, um, uh, I suppose, over the last number of years. Um, and I, I think whenever you talk about things like this becoming popular in Western cultures, I think there's always sort of a fear of like cultural appropriation. Um, so I'm just trying to sort of tread very carefully here um, because I it was around, I'd say it was 10, it was 10 years ago actually now um, that I, a friend of mine in America um, had gone to Peru to sort of, she did, I think it was a, a two week long um, ayahuasca retreat. Um, I, th- I don't think there was any, there was no phone coverage or, you know, anything like that. So it was quite a sort of intense um, experience. And ever since she mentioned it, um, it was something that I thought, oh, I would really like to do that. But I was very wary Firstly, because I have done psychedelics and never had a great experience with them. Um, and secondly, because I was obviously, you know, like it, it's got quite an infamous um, effects where like a lot of people end up vomiting. Um, and I, I did think I was like, oh, that does sound or like having, you know, coming out the other way or, you know, whatever. So I was like, oh, it doesn't sound very pleasant. Um, and I suppose I have, I've thought like even in my recovery um, from my eating disorder, I think for such a long time, particularly in my late teens and early twenties, I was really looking for like a quick fix. You know, I, I did a lot of like, you know, talking about new age spirituality. Like I, I, I suppose, you know, I did angel healing and I did like past life regression and I did aura readings and like anything that I thought would sort of hold the answer to why I'd had an eating disorder and like to cure it. I, I really just wanted that. And I suppose I just actually came to realize that the only thing that was going to help me recover from my eating disorder was consistency and hard work. And that has been very true over the last five years. Like it has just been a real determination and a real commitment to recovery. So when people sort of talk about ayahuasca and saying, oh, it's 30 years of, you know, therapy in one night, a part of me thinks, I don't know if you, you should have 30 years of therapy in one night. But I don't know, I suppose, I think even over the last year, and I, I, I think a lot of people have been having this experience. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic. I don't know if it's because of the war in Ukraine. Um, and now, you know, I suppose the, like all of this talk about cost of living and, um, and energy crisis and, and the climate crisis. And like, I have felt incredibly, I have felt quite stuck. I have felt quite fearful. I have felt very, I felt quite burnt out. And I think, and I know that's such a, and I, I know that's such a privileged thing. Do you know what I mean? As in, I, I, and I really do want to acknowledge that, that like, there are a lot of people out there who, you know, are in the middle of like really terrible situations. And the idea of burnout is probably like, as I said, like really kind of first world problems. Um, But just from a personal point of view, I think that is where I've sort of, been at and I think from speaking to a lot of my friends there has been this sort of sense of is this it like what else is there to this like you know and and those kind of greater questions of like why am I here and what is my life purpose as Sally Rooney puts it beautiful world where are you (laughs) yeah 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 exactly and and so yes I suppose I thought maybe like with the ayahuasca that it would give me some answers to some of that and did it what was it like? I mean, it was very intense. Like it was really, really intense. Actually, I will say it showed me a lot of things that I think were interesting and in that I found it very difficult to give into it completely. And I thought that like, I know myself, I am a very controlled person. And I think it really highlighted that for me that like, I found it so difficult to, and I think you have to sort of submit to it and you have to sort of let it have its way with you nearly. And I could see like really trying to kind of hold on to I am in control and, 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 and I thought, okay, that's, and, and the other thing that I thought was very striking was I really needed to be sick and I was so afraid to vomit 
because I've been in recovery for five years now and I haven't been sick. And I think there was a part of me that was like vomiting is like related to the bulimia. And I was so, so I think that was really, really like I couldn't, I couldn't believe it because I was like, God, I really need to be sick. But I was like, I just couldn't seem to, it was as if I had taken a blood oath and said, I will never be sick again. <laughs> I was like, I really need to, you know, I really need to throw up here. Um, but I will say that like in the days afterwards, there was like a much, I don't know, I felt much more kind of at peace. And like, I have been doing a lot of reading around, I suppose. Now, this is very different to taking ayahuasca. Like, I think when we look at sort of how um, like mushrooms and, and MDMA and things like that are being used in uh, therapeutic a sense particularly treating PTSD and depression like that's in a much more controlled environment so I'm not saying that people who have PTSD should go take ayahuasca you know but I suppose the studies that are being done into psychedelics they are fascinating like it is it's showing incredible promise um and I suppose it's a pity that I suppose there's still this kind of stigma attached to so-called party drugs and maybe the money and, and things like that is not being put into that but I will say in the in the sort of the, the weeks that passed I, or that followed I did feel much lighter in myself um, and creatively I felt much more, um, I don't know, I felt much more excited and much more motivated, but I'm always kind of wary of saying things like that because, uh, you know, I know. And actually the the woman who was, um, um, one of the women who was doing it really said to me, she was like, every time you do it, it'll be a very different experience. And I suppose, so that when I talk about my experience, that if you did a Roisin or if anyone who was listening did it, they might have an entirely different reaction, an entirely different experience. So I think it's really important to kind of um, point that out as well. I'm not, condo- like, I'm that- just like, please, I, you know, I am not yeah. taking Don't this- try this at yeah, home, exactly. you're saying, aren't we, Louise? <laughs> exactly. There's <laughs> a health warning. Yeah. <laughs> don't be like Louise, be yourself. It's like we said at the beginning, don't treat Louise as a guru. You have to be your own guru. <laughs> We don't get any lawsuits now, people trying Ayahuasca. Exactly. And also I'm like, I would definitely never pretend to be a guru. I, uh, no, definitely do not do what I do. But I think um, having said that, um, in all your books, there's always so much to think about, Louise. There's always so many things that set us off um, thinking about our own experiences, about life, about friendship, about toxic relationships. And I think this is another one. So well done on Idol. Oh, thank you. And I can't wait for your next one as well and all the the different projects I'm sure you have lined up. Thanks so much for joining us on the Women's Podcast. Oh, thank you, Roisin. Great to have you. That's all we have time for. Thanks very much to Louise O'Neill and to Alice Kelly. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on social at ITWomensPodcast. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>